With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacU Health with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEBroadcasting.com and sign up today. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Vincent Brandes. In this episode, Dr. Brandes discusses who are appropriate candidates for refractive surgery. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell. Also, please leave comments. Be sure to watch our full-length documentary. Open your eyes on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube movies and shows. Something I've seen uh, is something called corneal molding, where the patient, uh, instead of seeing 2020, is now a 2030 patient and has bought one of these contact lenses by one of these over-the-counter online companies that they don't really examine the patient. They just send them contact lenses. And they, this is a patient who was wearing one of the regular contact lenses, uh, you know, a Bauchalam contact lens we're seeing 2020, or they've been wearing a Johnson Johnson or Cooper Vision or Alcon, one of the big companies that do a lot of research and development in contact lenses, but they, they, they saw advertisement and they tried one of these free 30-day uh, trials or paid a not uh, a minimal amount. And they came in and all of a sudden they're seeing 2030 and their cornea was distorted because we could do aberrometry to see if there's distortions on the cornea. And this patient was seeing 2030. And I thought that, wow, that's that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. And uh, any corneal molding issues that you've seen that you could tell us about? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, this is, it's been a while, but I, I wanted to uh, educate the listeners who may not be providers. There are three types or three parts of a contact lens prescription. Uh, there's the power, of course, you know, nearsighted, farsighted. If you have astigmatism, that would be a torque lens. And then there's something called the base curve or BC. You'll see it on your box. And the base curve is specific for your cornea. And even if you have the same prescription as your wife, you may have a different base curve because of the way your eye is shaped. And then the DAI that's on your box, that's diameter, that's the size of the lens. And that also will play a factor into how the lens fits. And the corneal moldings that I've seen are the bigger lenses that patients are getting from a non-FDA approved company and they're wearing them and they're actually molding the eye, just like it sounds. And they're actually distorting the cornea and when we do topography, we can see these changes. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a toric lens, which would be a little thicker, but I think the patient doesn't realize by that substitution, in the, in the one case that I, that I can recall, 
the patient, when I showed her what the BC diameter meant, and she looked at the box of what she got from uh, this online seller, they weren't even close. It was a steeper fit. It was a larger lens. And she started to see the changes. Thank God she came in before something more drastic happened. Um, her acuity wasn't that bad. It was 20, 25, but she had some halos. So we got her out of that lens and kind of educated her. Um, and last time I checked, she started a little blog or has a blog, but added that to her blog about the dangers of using lenses that your doctor didn't prescribe. Interesting. And uh, if you know her blog, uh, we'll be happy to uh, put it at the yeah. end of the show notes. Uh, if you could mention it, if you could remember the name of it. Uh, let's go to uh, giant papillary conjunctivitis. That's something we should see a lot. Yes. Now with single use contact, we don't see as much, but we do see it every once in a while. So GPC, giant papillary conjunctivitis, is the upside down, your doctor will invert your lid and it'll look at the upper lid and see if there's these bumps. Now it's not on the cornea. We talked about bumps on the cornea. This is actually on your eyelids. And those, uh, the mechanical abrasion of the lens and lid uh, get a mucus buildup and these, it's a reaction to the plastic and it causes these bumps to grow. A lot of times, even when you switch someone out of contacts, it takes a long time to uh, get rid of those. Uh, Dr. Gelb, you may remember chromium sodium, um, which is a drug that I don't have prescribed in years, but there were other ways to inhibit that mast cell or that, or that reaction, the allergic response that the patient was getting from wearing um, the old style of contact lens. But, um, the way we treat it now is a daily lens. And sometimes uh, patients don't like to hear this, but they have to have a contact lens holiday. They need to take uh, um, a break from wearing their contacts because it's that uh, force that's causing almost like a, a, a scab or a callus. And that's not gonna get better when you keep wearing your contacts. And then this corneal vascularization where blood vessels start to grow inside the cornea. Yeah, that's a tough one um, for patients to understand. And thank God we have um, smartphones and, and uh, video cameras on our slit lamps these days. And we can show the patient what that is. So again, cornea transparent covering, the iris, the margin between the, the blue and the white part of your eye, the blood vessels will come from the white part and cross over into your iris. And it's corneal, in the cornea, neo, which means new vascularization blood vessels. So new blood vessels are growing into your cornea. Again, you don't know it. You think it's fine. And a lot of times it's a patient with no symptoms. It's a patient who sees well, patient who has no self or self-reporting issues or a health history. They've just been using context for so long and their response to the way they're wearing those lenses, even if we switch lenses, is not a positive response. So again, we have to consider either taking them out of contacts, trying maybe a gas perm lens or contract surgery. And this all leads to uh, contact lens intolerance and also dry eye. So the difference between dry eye syndrome and contact lens associated dryness, how would you make that distinction? So if a patient has dry eye, we will be able to evaluate it um, whether they wear contacts or not. But then there are the patients who have worn contacts for a long time. Now they're developing more dryness, and now it's becoming contact lens-induced dryness. 
So we deal with it. There are individuals who suffer from autoimmune disorders like Sjogren's, and there are individuals who uh, have hormonal changes and th that will affect their, their overall comfort. But what you have to do is start with the tear film, make sure you can get it as strong as possible, try to diminish inflammation. Now, uh, when we graduated back in the day, Carrie, there wasn't cyclosporine drugs. Now, thank God we have them because the only way we could treat inflammation in the eye is, you know, the drug of choice back then was Predforte, but you couldn't put a patient on that long-term. That's going to cause a problem. Um, spikes in their intraocular eye pressure and uh, potential cataracts. So we wanted to make sure that we could diminish uh, inflammation. And now with the three drugs that are out there, one of them now is generic. It's a great way to help the patient either stay in contacts or help the folks who aren't wearing contacts and need that drug to diminish the swelling and inflammation that they get in their eye. And one of the causes of dry eyes is meibomian gland dysfunction. If you could explain the importance of the meibomian glands, and you, you referred to it a little bit when you went through the different parts of the tear layer and the, and the oil layer, but explain about that and why do people get meibomian gland dysfunction and what could be done about it and why does it cause dry eye? Well, that's a, a, a revolutionary I, a change in how we uh, attack this problem. So the meibomian gland is in your lid and in the lid, it creates this oil to protect and coat the eye on the uh, uh, anterior surface, the front surface. So what happens with contact lens wear, and it also happens with people who don't wear contacts, the gland itself stops producing and also can get clogged. So your provider can see if it's tapped, if there's this substance over it. And so they can massage it and open it and that will create this discharge. Uh, but now there are um, great technology that can analyze your meibomian glands. I'm holding my fingers up because that's exactly what they look like when we do the scan. And you can see if they're fully um, producing or if they're uh, not producing at all. And there are ways now which we can uh, treat that by using heat and other lights to increase meibomian gland production. Because when you don't create that and you have this issue, again, contact lens related and not, it's not going to get any better. And so MGD, as we call it for short, is probably the biggest issue with uh, contact lens intolerance. So let's, so if someone is contact lens intolerant, they're looking for other options. You know, they, they have to wear their glasses or they might be a good candidate for refractive surgery. Uh, tell me in general about refractive surgery and pa are patients generally happy after they have refractive surgery? And if you comp compare refractive surgery versus happiness versus other modalities of vision correction. So as I mentioned, I'm a, a refractive surgery patient for many years. Uh, my daughter, my sister, many members of my family, many patients of mine, um, I don't remember more than five patients, I think, certainly less than 10, who I referred for PRK. Um, partly because of the uh, way the eye has to heal and the, um, the way the patient's post-op care is done. I mean, it's not a very comfortable uh, way to have refractive surgery, which is why LASIK was invented. But with PRK, the surgeon 
breaks up the top layer, the epithelium of your eye with an eczema laser. And by doing that, they flatten it. They're taking tissue off and by flattening it, it's changing the light into your eye and giving you your full correction, hopefully. But sometimes with the recovery from PRK, if there's a infection, if there's long-term swelling, the cornea may not uh, respond and it may take longer for you to heal. LASIK came out in the late 90s, I believe 96, 95 in America, and LASIK creates a flap. It's a 270 degree flap where the surgeon then takes it back, treats the lower um, tissue, puts the flap back down. When I had it done, they used a blade, a microkeratome. Now, most surgeons use a femtosecond laser, intralase, to make that flap. Um, a cleaner flap, a flap that probably will not have a lot of DLK, which is um, just a swelling inside the, the layers, uh, almost a wrinkling of the flap. So most surgeons, uh, those surgeons we work with are you know, using a microkeratome, I'm sorry, not using a microkeratome, using the intralace laser. And the latest- Just to interrupt, because I want to get into that in, in more depth in a minute, but the, the refractive surgery patients, where are they coming from? Are they coming from contact lens dropouts? And what are the, what's the, the most common reason why people are dropping out of contact? Is it vision and dryness uh, or is it something else? The, by far the most common uh, in my practice anyway is uh, contact lens intolerance, uh, not even close. Um, it's, and it's because the patients, the, the ones who have always had glasses and you talk to them about contacts and they're just scared, I don't wanna touch my eye. When you tell them, describe the process of any of the refractive options, they're freaked out. And then you say, oh, will they, will they put me under? No, you're awake. Uh, so then those individuals, sometimes uh, they'll never bring it up again because they're just anxious about the process. And I haven't had many patients over my 30 years that have worn glasses exclusively and went to refractive procedures. So it's the ones who have had contacts, like the ability to see without having glasses and want that back. But because of their MGD, from their hypoxia, from whatever the situation is, want that vision, but don't want to have to deal with the contact lens intolerance. Okay, so let's take the different types of refractive surgeries and let's go into some detail. You, you alluded to LASIK. Tell us about LASIK. What kind of lasers you use? You have to use two lasers. Uh, how long does it take? And let's start off with who's a good candidate for LASIK? Well, number one, it's an age minimum. Okay, most surgeons, surgeons we work with start at 21. I've seen patients uh, go to other doctors and get it at 18, but you want stability. So you could be 25, but if your vision keeps changing, it's like the old rule of carpentry, Gary. We, we measure twice, cut once. We wanna make sure that your vision, whatever is going to be put into the software to calculate the best prescription to get your vision postoperatively back to where it was when you had your contacts and glasses on, we wanna make sure that we have your stability over at least a 12 month period, sometimes longer. Individuals who are pregnant or who wanna get pregnant should probably wait to start their families uh, and then have refractive surgery done. Individuals who are not healthy, uh, I talked about autoimmune disorders, uh, diabetics. Uh, I'm not saying you can't have it done, but you would need a co-management work 
uh, with the or up with your rheumatologist or your endocrinologist to make sure that when you do this, is it something that they state that your your A1C is controlled or or your ANA on your on your uh, lupus is controlled, where they feel like you can go ahead and um, take the risk. And finally, I think it comes down to just that risk and reward. Uh, remember, even the greatest surgeon with the most experience is still a human being. It's a computer, uh, it's a laser, and you wanna make sure that you go to someone who's experienced, but there is a risk involved. Now, I personally have never seen a patient who's lost vision uh, with their post-op LASIK. And when I mean lost vision, I mean complete darkness. Um, I don't think many of us have, but they've lost best corrected vision. So that's the risk you're taking. So in LASIK, when they make that flap and they put it down, there's no sutures, there's no stitches, there's no patches. So it has to regrow. And just like your little cut on your finger is gonna regrow, the tissue has to regrow. And if the flap dislodges, and there's been documented cases of the flap moving um, from rubbing the eye or airbag deploying, um, you know, sports activities uh, causing that, that's the key after LASIK, you still years later, and I'm you know, many years later, 24 years after my surgery, I still am very careful around potential ways that an F-flap can get, get dislodged. So what we wanna make sure is the patient understands there's always a risk. And if your vision was 20-20 with your glasses on and your contacts, and you were 2400 without them, the goal is to get you back to 2020. Now, unfortunately, I've seen patients who ended up 2030. Well, 2030 is a heck of a lot better than 2040, I'm sorry, 2400, but they've lost permanent vision, best corrected vision, and that's the risk you take when you consider refractive surgery versus staying in your contact. So when you have LASIK, you need two different lasers. If you could explain that part of the, those, the procedure a little bit. Sure. So in LASIK um, nowadays, um, I'm sure it's done somewhere in America, but most use a femtosecond laser. That's the laser that creates your flap. And then when they take the flap back and they treat the, the underlying bed of tissue, that's an eczema laser. And the eczema laser is ablating tissue, flattening it. You actually, when I had it done, I could hear the little pop and you can even, there's a distinct smell too. Not, you know, bad, but you, it's definitely, you can, you can hear the tissue being changed and then they put the flap back down. From my patient's point of view, um, I think it took 40 seconds, uh, start to finish. Um, there's more prep time and you know the issues that you have afterwards pretty much go away within a, a few days. You'll be given uh, medications to deal with your, uh, your post-op swelling and prevent infection. But for me, LASIK was a godsend. I, 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 I love my vision and I'm very grateful for it. But those two lasers are the key to giving you best vision. I would, I still today tell the patient, you know, I had a, a relative ask me for a recommendation in Topeka. I don't know a surgeon in Topeka, but I said, make sure they have a lot of experience, um, you know, at least on 10,000 refractive procedures and that they're using two lasers for their LASIK. If they're still using a blade, do not go to that surgeon. Explain why you have to make a flap. So in PRK, there's no flap. And that, again, was the same end result, but there was a lot of pain. You're, 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 you're going through corneal nerves in your eye. And that was, they thought, and still probably is, if you have a very thin cornea, 
uh, we'll do a measurement on you. It's called tachymetry. And we're going to measure your corneal thickness. If it's a certain, excuse me, level of, of thickness that is minimum, you can't get LASIK. So PRK is your only option. Um, I've had a couple patients, even one last year, had very deep set orbits. And so, you know, they, they were very uh, skeptical about, about doing that. Uh, but nowadays they don't use microkeratome. So that shouldn't be too much of a problem. But the level of correction with the flap is it's almost making a band-aid. So you're, you're, the surgeon's making the flap. So when he, he or she puts it down, it's going to not have that pain and nerve um, uh, debilitating feel with burning in your eyes that you will if you did do PRK. So PRK, you're just using, just using a laser, but you have to scrape the front surface of the eye, the epithelium. Yeah. So that has to heal. And that's certainly a lot. There, there could be some pain involved. When yeah. you're doing LASIK, you're getting to the, what we call the stromer, the tissue that needs to be vaporized just by making this flap and then by pushing it back down, it'll heal easier and, and it's a more, much more comfortable recovery, but you may not be able to treat as much of a prescription because you have to, you have to make that cut into the cornea so less of the stromer is exposed. Is that correct? That is exactly correct. And I think the individuals who have, you remember, the more tissue you take, or the higher your prescription, the more tissue has to come off. And so there are individuals who are highly myopic, uh, seven, eight, and nine, um, in the early days of LASIK, there wasn't, surgeons were, were getting a little more aggressive. Now they're more conservative. There's another procedure out there too. But I mean, even in general, before SMILE was invented, um, some surgeons were going as high as minus nine and minus 10 if the patient had nice thick corneas. Uh, but again, it's still more of a risk because the flap and the combination of the tissue underneath has to heal. If there's any swelling, if you get any issues with how the vision uh, ends up after your surgery, sometimes we have to send the patient back and the technique is called float the flap or refloat it. So the surgeon will lift the flap, clean any debris that might be under the lens, or I'm sorry, under the flap and place it back down. Now the healing starts all over again, but that's something that if it's obstructing your vision, uh, one of the things I learned early on is if I had any debris uh, in a patient, if it was out of their zone of their visual access, sometimes, believe it or not, it'll actually move away and continue sometimes to go off the axis and stay off the axis. If it's right over, you can't wait. You have to send the patient back. So a complication for the patients who are considering it is when you are healing, if you start to see distortion, start to see halos of light that you didn't see before, that's probably your flat swelling. So the higher the prescription, the more tissue you have to remove or vaporize, the greater risk of something called ectasia. Explain what ectasia is, and that's something that we're very worried about. Uh, yeah, ectasia, before we had the technology to examine the full thickness of the cornea, uh, one of the conditions that early on we weren't able to, with topography, 100% uh, identify was keratoconus. So kerato means peak, cona, or I'm sorry, kerato means cornea, cone means peak. And so it's a peaking or you're thinning of the cornea and it's pushing up like this. 
And again, there are special contact lenses, uh, hard lenses, scleral lenses that we can fit, sometimes even a hybrid lens. But if you're an unidentified pre-cone, as we call them, um, or afterwards you get a LASIK procedure done and you have acacia, um, your vision is permanently changed. A lot of times uh, there's not much the surgeon can do. And so the patient comes back to us wanting to get the best refraction possible and potentially getting in fit into some type of specialty lens, depending on how well uh, their cornea integrity is. But that is a very important concern. And that's why the, the post-operative care is, is key. But I think pre and selection of who you're going to do LASIK on is more important than anything we can do afterwards. Yeah, because if, they, if the patient gets a cajun and they get this distorted cornea, they're very unhappy and their only treatment really is some very sophisticated, sophisticated types of contact lenses. So the patient doesn't get the outcome they want and, and, and now they have to wear these very expensive contact lenses that are uh, difficult to wear. So that is a side effect of LASIK that one of the reasons that the surgeons aren't doing such high prescriptions anymore because that's something they're very concerned about. Absolutely, because they're an unhappy patient. And, you know, like you just mentioned, it's not a simple lens. Uh, most cases you need to fit that patient in some type of rigid hybrid or scleral lens to try to get them um, the vision that they want. And if this patient is over 40, Oh, that's even worse because now they have presbyopia and other issues and they have inconsistent vision. And now we have someone who probably had contact lens intolerance. So now you're making it worse because they got to still wear contacts. MacuHealth, your science born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. There's also a, a, a risk of having severe pain after LASIK. It's very rare. Mm -hmm. but it can happen. Yeah, uh, I, I haven't had, had one patient uh, who really had a complication. And, um, but again, um, it was a patient who didn't listen uh, and he decided to uh, use a hot tub, a public hot tub. Uh, and he had uh, epithelial ingrowth from a uh, bacteria that he admitted he dunked his head in a public hot tub. That's um, mm. not a good idea if you have LASIK or contacts, or even if you wear glasses. Don't dunk your head in a public hospital. Yeah, no, public no, no, service no. announcement for today. So people are concerned that if they sneeze during the LASIK procedure, that it's gonna get the wrong. They're gonna get the wrong treatment. What happens if you sneeze during LASIK? Well, besides the surgeon having an increase in his blood pressure and pulse rate, <laughs> uh, it, it you are you have a a uh, when you're in the operating suite, you have a lid speculum that is placed in your eye. You're giving, most surgeons use Valium. So you're given Valium to kind of take the edge off. Uh, you are not under general anesthesia. Uh, unlike cataract surgery, most surgeons do bilateral procedures, whether it's BRK, that's a little more aggressive, but certainly LASIK, it's done bilateral. The newest procedure smile, bilateral. So, but that means both eyes are done, um, you can get a break in between eyes, but they're going to switch this microcarrot, I'm sorry, switch the lid speculum. So when you're there, they place it. So if you sneeze or cough or move, they're not going to be happy with you. So they'll reassure you um, and they'll make sure that the staff is reassuring you. Um, a lot of times 
uh, again, the surgeons we use, they actually have one staffer who is, whose job is to sit next to the patient and hold the patient's hand and reassure the patient, everything's going smoothly, you know, sit still, look at the light, you know, try not to blink, try not to think, you know, just, and it happens so quickly that um, the only part of LASIK that I think personally was scary for me is when I blacked out. And I don't mean black out like I fast, passed out, uh, the pressure in the eye to make the LASIK uh, microkeratone, or for me, microkeratone, to make the eye rigid for them to create the flap, they have to increase the pressure in your eye. And you, the optic nerve then, uh, for literally seconds, blacks your vision out. It comes back immediately. But if again, make sure you as the referring doctor, uh, educate your patients what, what's about to happen, because that is something that uh, is definitely a little frightening. And, and, the laser, and the laser tracks your eye a, a thousand times per second. So if you move or something, it could shut off and yes. uh, it, it, it'll follow you. So you, if you sneeze, you don't really have to have to worry about it. Yes. I mean, I, I've i never had a patient had that problem, but yes, or, or cough for that matter too. I mean, there there's a, a check and, and fail safe way of, uh, of not making um, a bad outcome just because you had a sneeze or a cough. And how about the post-op with uh, LASIK? So you had LASIK, you back to your optometrist. What should you expect? Depending on how well the surgery went, your vision, using the example of 2400, when you leave the OR suite, they're going to check your vision. They're going to make sure the flap is centered and that your eye, you might have uh, what we call subconjunctival hemorrhages. On the white of your eye, uh, you'll see these little like red blotches. It kind of looks not like uh, red when you rub the eyes, but, or like little vessels, but a, like a, a collection of blood vessels. And that's because your pressure was built up when they were doing it. And so you'll see this redness right away. Don't panic, it's not a bad thing. It's not an infection. And you're probably gonna be vision, if it's a good outcome, you should be 20, 30, 20, 40, right away at the, before you leave the office. And then when you come to your optometrist the next day, um, you should definitely, follow the instructions. Um, some surgeons use a different um, matrix of drops, but follow what they're recommending. Take the drops as indicated. What I did, which was, uh, I think, key for my recovery, is I went home and I took a nap. Um, you know, I, I uh, did wear little goggles. They give you just a little protective goggles. For the first couple of days, um, even if you sleep alone, you should probably wear the goggles. You may rub your eye or flip over or your pillow might hit it. Um, and that can move the flap. You're pretty feeling good. There's not a lot of pain. And then when your optometrist sees you on, on the next day, you may not be 20-20 yet, but as long as your flap is centered, uh, he'll see you or she'll see you again uh, in a week and continue to monitor your progress. Let's talk about the next procedure, which is really exciting. It's a procedure that Many of the army combat personnel are opting for a lot of the police because you don't athletes because you don't need a flap. It's called SMILE. And uh, if you remember what SMILE stands for, if you could tell us what that is and sure. tell us what is SMILE and what's the difference between SMILE and its advantages or maybe disadvantage over LASIK. So the surgeons we use, uh, ironically, are in a medical building and they're on the third floor. And they're one of two practices in the Chicagoland area who are now doing SMILE. On the second floor is a dental practice. So when you walk in the elevator, <laughs> you punch 
smile. That's the name of the dental office for the second floor, except the cornea specialists are on the third floor. So I, I find that amusing that it's the same name, but smile has nothing to do with your, your, your pearly whites or your teeth. Uh, it's called small incision lenticular extraction, S-M-I-L-E. And it's a different procedure, like Dr. Gelb said, because it doesn't create a flap. Um, and you're correct, uh, our military, our, our aviators, uh, this week, top guns coming out. Uh, so those people who have to fly at, at uh, high speeds and G-forces were potentially at risk for that flap moving. And so we all want pilots as taxpayers to have great vision, but there are the um, other individuals who are involved in aviation. If they need not contacts, if they need to see, smile is an option, as well as our combat personnel. So if you do PRK, they're going to be out of you know going uh, to do anything in the military for at least a week, probably more like three to four weeks, depending on how well they heal. Smile, you don't have that. It's a much quicker recovery. Um, I've already referred three patients to have it done. Um, all have been successful. One of them was 66 years old. She had tired of her gas perms. Um, the thought of getting cut with LASIK just freaked her out. And finally, she uh, made the big jump and had Smile done about a month ago. Um, and she was a moderate myope who's gonna wear glasses afterwards. She did not want monovision. We tried that. Um, so Smile has the best of LASIK without blacking you out and causing potential subconj hemorrhages, the redness that I talked about. And it also will give you, the patient, who may have been disqualified or didn't qualify for LASIK because the parameters of SMILE are a little higher in terms of what uh, the surgeon can correct for. Explain to us the procedure, how it works. So it's a different laser. Uh, it's, it's called uh, the Visumax. And so what it does is it ablates tissue. There's an eczema uh, tissue uh, that when they're flattening in between the cornea, there's layers, and they flatten that area. And so when they break it up, when they make an incision, it's typically a three to four millimeter incision, then the surgeon opens that area that was cut by the laser and pulls it out like a wafer. And so it effectively flattens. So think about an Oreo cookie where you have the two layers, they pull this part out and the layers come down and touch. And because they're flattening the eye, the procedure itself uh, isn't as invasive as LASIK and certainly not as invasive as PRK. And they're using a femtosecond laser instead of an eczema laser, is that correct? That's correct, yep. And how do they know how much of the tissue to remove? There is a formula or nomogram that they've been using. Uh, it's been done um, since 2018, uh, I believe here in the States, but it's been longer um, overseas. And um, in this area, like I said, there's two surgeons that have been doing it since the end of last year. And it's, a, it's more intense of a surgical skill. Not that any surgeon could do PRK, any eye surgeon can, uh, but the level of experience and PRK, not so important, definitely more important in LASIK. And I think from the observing it and from seeing patients three now postoperatively, it's the surgical skill. And obviously these surgeons are still learning the procedure, uh, but the way you have to make the incision and find the anterior and posterior plane, the front and the bottom of this wafer takes some skill. And I always have said, 
um, to patients, again, who want a referral for a practice outside of Chicagoland, um, I personally recommend any refractive procedure done by a cornea specialist. Um, and if you're in an area they don't have one or you can't find one, you wanna go to someone with smile who does a lot of cataracts because it's a similar hand-eye coordination to make sure that they're doing it correctly. And timing is important too. You, you don't, the longer you stay in the eye, the more inflammation. So you wanna make sure that your surgeon um, is skilled to handle any potential complication. But the bottom line is after you get the procedure, your recovery is faster in most cases, and you don't have the same side effects that you would for PRK or LASIK. And there's a less risk of scarring, I understand. Yes, definitely. Because again, there's no flap. There, the flap again was 270 degrees. Now they're making a three millimeter to four millimeter opening to uh, get that uh, wafer out. Now we do a, a technique all optometrists do where we measure the thickness of the cornea. It's called pachymetry. Now, is smile better with the thinner corneas? That is a question for a corneal surgeon. I'm not trying to deflect here, but I, I would say yes from what I know, but um, it depends upon the patient, the prescription, the age. There's a whole host of factors, but in general, I guess I would say yes. And the opening to remove that wafer of tissue is, is, is how big is that? Three to four millimeters. Sometimes they go a little larger, but I, I, I believe um, most surgeons are doing a four millimeter flap, or not flap, a four, four millimeter opening. And how are they removing that, that, that wafer? With forceps, just pulling it right out. They're just pulling it out. Mm -hmm. And how long is the recovery where people can start to see well? Faster than LASIK, uh, and that's been documented by uh, an independent study um, in terms of comparing LASIK and certainly PRK, but I think the study was more LASIK versus SMILE. And again, because it's, I'm not gonna say a self-contained structure, but you're, think about it, you're cutting all this versus just this little area here, and the chance of infection, the chance of inflammation uh, is reduced. And what's the follow-up uh, as far as drops goes to follow the patient? Well, I actually got the chance to observe a surgeon in Naples, Florida, and I was there on a Friday. And so he has optometrists working with him as well. So I made the joke and I said, which one of your ODs has to come in tomorrow to see this patient? Now he's done a lot of smile. He's probably at that point, he was over 300. And he said, this is so much easier than LASIK, no one. I said, what do you mean? He said, if there's, unless the patient has some unusual uh, issue during the surgery or after, we won't see the patient till Monday. Uh, and he does all his smiles on Fridays. So <clears throat> the recovery is faster, um, obviously lubrication, antibiotics, and, um, and anti-inflammatory medicine, eye drops are used. But he has done, oh, what he does, which is kind of unique. So remember the wafer I was telling you about? What he does is he has his staff take the wafer out, they put it on a piece of like cardboard and they put fluorescein on it. So your souvenir, like when you go to your dentist as a kid, you get your teeth, you have orange circles of the wafer that you can, I don't know, put on eBay or something, but he actually gives his patients the orange wafer after surgery. 
Interesting. Now, <laughs> can this be done with people that are farsighted or is it just for nearsighted? Just for nearsighted now. And there's a certain level of astigmatism as well. Um, so the parameters, um, off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly, but I believe it up, goes up to minus 10 of your degrees of, of uh, diopters of nearsightedness. And I, excuse me, believe astigmatism is minus two. And side effects that we need to be concerned about? I'm not aware of any. I mean, again, it's the healing time. Um, I think it's more, as we talked about, it's always a pre-selection. Um, you wanna make sure that the patient understands that there's risk. And it, I think if you're deciding between the two and you are maybe someone who didn't think about LASIK because you didn't like the fact of a cut, um, talk to your doctor about SMILE. And so let's move to the PRK of photorefractive keratectomy. Uh, to treat nearsight, something that's not, we talked a little bit about it before, it's not used as much. When is it a time to use PRK? The older fashion type surgery where you're scraping yeah, the whole front surface. I, I believe it would be for thinner corneas as well. Um, but again, because of the recovery time, um, I, again, I don't know how many uh, referrals for refractive surgery patients have actually had it done, but I want to say it's probably less than five uh, uh, or right around there. I'm not a big proponent of PRK. I mean, if that's the only option for the patient, great. And I believe it was one young man who wanted to go to the military and he was applying to get in uh, to one of the academies. So he had PRK before he went in. <clears throat> and PRK was done for athletes. So you don't have a flap. Is that right. something we could use smile for instead? Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the small incision that, I, that I'm uh, referring to uh, keeps the eye more stable. Now let's talk about people that have very high prescription and we have to use uh, implants, almost like a cataract implant. If you could speak a little bit to that. So when you have the lens of your eye and gets cloudy, that's called a cataract. And then you get a plastic implant put in its place. Um, there are individuals who are still has their lens. It's clear. It's not, not cloudy or anything. They're, they're young, um, but their prescription might be a minus 18. They're high mile. Um, and then what the surgeon will do is actually put an implant in front of your lens to try to ICL, to try to get all of the correction afterwards. Sometimes they might have to do an RK cut. Sometimes they will do basic afterwards. It just depends upon how much of the anterior chamber depth you have in order for them to calculate the correct power. And that's, again, a very surgical dependent procedure. That's someone who either is a cornea specialist or someone who is very versed in cataract surgery. Not a lot of general ophthalmologists are doing ICLs. And the side effects to that, do we have to worry about the, the implant touching the lens and causing a cataract? Uh, yes, and it also can cause an iritis, uh, depending on, on how the, the, the lens is placed and how the patient recovers. Again, your health is important. So if you're someone who has uh, inflammatory markers, you're probably not a good, a good candidate for an ICL. Before we mentioned about ectasia, which is a thinning of the cornea, and we talked about it, when it in terms of LASIK. But how about in terms of PRK or SMILE? Is ectasia an issue for us? 
Tasia is always an issue. I mean, I think what you want to uh, make sure, uh, well, the surgeons will make sure, and you, if you are working with a surgeon and you have um, topography and the ability to screen the patient appropriately, um, ectasia is something that you want to rule out uh, for all three, but more specifically um, for the final or the second two, PRK, I'm sorry, LASIK and um, final. And you, is there a greater risk of ectasia with, uh, with a, a PRK, LASIK, or SMILE? I know there's been some studies on it, but or we really are, just aren't sure yet. I'm not versed on that well enough to give you a confident answer. Um, obviously, um, there's been many cases, unfortunately, of ectasia with, with, uh, with LASIK. Um, and I believe um, the screening process with uh, that is improved with SMILE but I honestly do not know. And let's look into the future a little bit. Uh, what do we see for the future for refractive surgery? And how about presbyopes, people over the age of 40 that can read that are looking for some type of refractive surgery? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, new frontier. Uh, I think folks may be aware of there, there's a, an old eye drop called pilocarping that has been reformulated and now has been marketed for the beginning or emerging presbyopes uh, between 35 and 50 who might benefit from getting an improved vision or depth of field with this new drop. But, you know, as the baby boomers are graying on the last year of the boomers, and now we have our next generation of wave of, of, uh, of presbyopes coming, um, those individuals like seeing with their contacts and they don't want to wear reading glasses over. And there are patients who just can't do monovision. And a multifocal contact sounds like it's from outer space for some people. So trying to correct the presbyope, to me, there's nothing worse than that low hyperope who becomes presbyopic and is just beside themselves. Like, you know, they did something wrong in their life and this is someone up above punishing them. You know, they just don't understand. Like, I've never had to wear glasses. Why do I need to wear glasses now? I hate to wear glasses. And you try to explain it to them. So if there could be a, a procedure, which they're experimenting with several different uh, options, most of, involving the lens and the ciliary body to get that patient stability, um, that would be a significant market for them to uh, uh, address. And of course, we have multifocal ILLs, uh, implants, that people who are after cataract surgery for many years it could get monovision cataract surgery, not done too much. Most times it's correcting your distance and then you need glasses afterwards to read. Now with the multifocal IOLs becoming more popular, um, individuals for the most part, I never tell a multifocal patient, implant patient, that you're never gonna wear glasses, that's a mistake. So if your doctor is telling you that, uh, they're not being honest with you because depending on how well the surgery goes, depending on how well your uh, outcome is and your day-to-day -day life. If you're 65, still working full-time and your woodworking is your hobby, chances are you're still gonna need reading glasses to see that small stuff. Um, you know, if you're a little older and you don't have that visual demand up close, multifocals may be the only um, option for you, but you don't need glasses because you're not really having the same demand as the younger patient. Have you seen any patients that have you seen any patients that had the surgery where they put that disc in the cornea with the pinhole 
uh, like as you alluded to the, the new drop uh, Vuity that's being made, but they actually had a surgical procedure for presbyopia by putting a pinhole disc in, in, in one of the eyes. No, I haven't seen that. And the surgeons that I work with are just starting to do or will start to do, I think next month, um, LAL, the light adjustable lens, um, which is again for um, presbyopia and, and adjusting that. And the well, one practice surgery. here, yeah, well, one practice here in Chicago, it's, it's the OD that's doing it. They're the ones adjusting the, the uh, power after surgery. So they're using the light, the UV light to adjust the power. Interesting. Yep. That's, that, that's, that's going to be something that uh, for us to look forward to, you know, the technology changes so quickly every couple of years. It's almost the, the, the profession is reinvented. So yep. we, we, we live in a great profession and we're lucky, we're lucky to be part of it. Yeah. And uh, for you uh, patients out there listening, if your uh, eye care provider is not keeping up with technology, and not offering you uh, suggestions and potential new products and new ways to correct your vision, find someone who will. So Dr. Brandes, is there anything that uh, I left out that you'd like to tell the audience before we close the interview? Yeah, Carrie, I would. I think we need to think about our eyes connected to everything else. I know your, your, your fantastic movie, Open Your Eyes, started to increase the discussion about that. But when a patient comes in, and I had one yesterday, they're on Ozambic and metformin. I'm not diabetic. Okay. Yes, you are. No, no, no. I'm pre-diabetic. What's your A1C? Oh, I don't check that. No, no, you don't check it. Your doctor does. What's your daily? Uh, I don't. I'm too busy. So you, you, you've got to remember uh, that your eyes are connected to your body. And while we can diagnose glaucoma and other eye-related things, you need to make sure that your body's healthy. So you can't expect to have great vision into your 60s, 70s, and 80s if you have medical problems. So proper diet, nutrition, exercise, taking care of yourself will help your vision. And I always tell patients, the number one cause of blindness, in my opinion, it has nothing to do with the eye per se. It's diabetes. It's wicked. And it will cause so much damage to your body, but especially your vision. And it's controllable to the extent that you're willing to work with your endocrinologist and your physician to control your glucose levels and other aspects of the condition, because it's not just going to affect your eyes, it'll affect your feet, circulation, as well as cardiac uh, and respiratory. So take care of your body and the eyes will go with it. And uh, hopefully you'll see well into your 80s and not necessarily have any other complications, maybe cataract surgery when you get that Dr. Brandes, thank you for sharing that. There are close to 300 systemic, systemic diseases that can manifest in the eye, and many times the eye doctor is the first one to diagnose this. As I always say, the eye bone is connected to the toe bone, and uh, I just really appreciate you coming on the show today. You're a wealth of knowledge. Uh, you have a terrific personality, and I really enjoyed our conversation, and I just really want to thank you for uh, being my guest today. Oh, Carrie, it was my pleasure. I, I appreciate uh, the time and hopefully the folks listening. And if um, there's any questions for me per se, you can definitely reach out uh, via my uh, Gmail account and I'm sure Carrie can post it on, on his website and uh, I'd be happy to answer them. It's really important for patients to understand 
how important their vision is and what they can do to protect it. So thank you once again. So let's do, let's do that now. So if somebody wants to find out more about you or contact you, how can they do sure. that? Uh, my first initial is V, V Brandies. My last name is B-R-A-N-D-Y-S, the number 23 at Gmail. So V Brandies 23 at Gmail. And um, if you can just put in the subject line, open your eyes or Dr. Geld, so I'll know it's reference to this podcast. And I promise I'll get back to you. Well, Dr. Brandies, thank you for joining me today. This is Dr. Kerry Geld for Open Your Eyes. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEBroadcasting.com and sign up today. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Each generation was supposed to be healthier than the last one. Lifespan was supposed to be increasing. We were supposed to be in this paradise by now. Instead of getting healthier and healthier, it seems to have gone the opposite way. Millennials were projected to be the first generation in history to not outlive the generation before them. We are certainly headed for disaster. I think a lot of people are beginning to question the whole story. We live in a time where the paradigms are shifting. And the optometrist, in my opinion, is one of the best kept secrets. The public doesn't realize about going to the eye doctor. So many different diseases actually manifest in the eye. The back of the eye is the only place in the body that you could actually see the blood vessels. Completely non-invasively, you could screen thousands of people, not just for their eye health, but for their whole body health. Because this disease is here, it's also gonna be here. And I can look into the back of my eyeball and there are expert doctors on the ground who are looking at my eyeball while I'm doing it. The eye is the canary of the mind. The eye is the kingdom. Will everyone please Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.